This is WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. The following program presents the opinion of its participants and producer. It does not reflect an official opinion of WGDR or its licensee, Goddard College. Living Hero, Conversations with Living Luminaries and Mavericks. Most societies have an elite, and elite try to stay in power. And the ways they stay in power is not merely by controlling the means of production, to be Marxist, i.e. controlling the money, but by controlling the cognitive map, the way we think. And what really matters in that respect is not so much what is actually said in public, but is what is left undebated, unsaid. Good morning, and welcome to Living Hero. I'm your host and producer, Jari Chevalier. That was Gillian Tett, who oversees global coverage of financial markets for the Financial Times newspaper. And this clip was from the 2012 documentary film Four Horsemen. We'll hear more segments from Four Horsemen, as well as wise words from Jeremy Rifkin, George Lakoff, and Don Beck. Our show today is about frames of mind, otherwise known as mindsets, cognitive maps, value structures, and philosophies of human nature. And we're going to see that there are qualitative differences among the many worldviews and philosophies existing in our world today, and that these arise under particular conditions and pressures. Modern materialism and postmodern relativism, which dominate global politics, media, medicine, and education in every subject, right on through postgraduate levels, this entire dominant and operative worldview does not even vaguely represent the worldview of the world's most developed people or societies. Stay with us.
worldview and philosophy of mainstream U.S. and global policy touted by the likes of Nobel laureate Milton Friedman and maintained by Chairman of the Reserve Bank Alan Greenspan is an approach glorified by the novelist and self-proclaimed philosopher Ayn Rand. Here is Ayn Rand being interviewed in 1959 by Mike Wallace. My philosophy is based on the concept that reality exists as an objective absolute, that man's mind, reason, is his means of perceiving it, and that man needs a rational morality. I am primarily the creator of a new code of morality which has so far been believed impossible, namely, a morality not based on faith. On faith. Not on faith, not on arbitrary whim, not on emotion, not on arbitrary edict, mystical or social, but on reason, a morality which can be proved by means of logic, which can be demonstrated to be true and necessary. All right, all right. Now, may I define what my morality is? All right. Because this is merely an introduction. My morality is based on man's life as a standard of value. And since man's mind is his basic means of survival, I hold that if man wants to live on earth and to live as a human being, he has to hold reason as an absolute, by which I mean that he has to hold reason as his only guide to action and that he must live by the independent judgment of his own mind, that his highest moral purpose is the achievement of his own happiness, and that he must not force other people nor accept their right to force him, that each man must live as an end in himself and follow his own rational self-interest. May I interrupt now? You may. Because you bring, you, you put this philosophy to work in your novel Atlas Shrugged. That's right. You demonstrate it in, in human terms in your novel Atlas Shrugged. And let me start by quoting from a review of this novel Atlas Shrugged that appeared in Newsweek. It said that you are out to destroy almost every edifice in the contemporary American way of life, our Judeo-Christian religion, our modified government-regulated capitalism, our rule by the majority will. Other reviews have said that you scorn churches and the concept of God. Are these accurate criticisms? Uh, yes. I agree with the facts, but not the estimate of this criticism. Namely, if I am challenging the base of all these institutions, I'm challenging the moral code of altruism, the precept that man's moral duty is to live for others that man must sacrifice himself to others, which is the present-day morality. What do you Since mean by I sacrifice himself for others? This Now we're moment. getting to the point. One moment. Since I'm challenging the base, I necessarily would challenge the institutions you named, which are a result of that morality. All right. And now what is self-sacrifice? Yes, what is self-sacrifice? You say that you do not like the altruism by which we live. You, you like a certain kind of Ayn Randist selfishness. I uh, would say that I don't like is too weak a word. I consider it evil. And uh, self-sacrifice is the precept that man needs to serve others in order to justify his existence, that his moral duty is to serve others. That is what most people believe today. Well, yes, we're taught to feel concerned for our fellow man, to feel responsible. For
Can you hear the incredulity and exasperation in Mike Wallace's voice? When she starts calling that which is immoral her morality, she is demonstrating what George Lakoff calls Orwellian language, doublespeak. We hear the speech of a sociopathic personality here, laced with dangerous untruths, some of which we will be clarifying in this program. And now back to the Four Horsemen and what the film's title is pointing to. The modern-day Four Horsemen, a rapacious financial system, escalating organized violence, abject poverty for billions, and the exhaustion of the Earth's resources, are riding roughshod over those who can least afford it. They gallop unchallenged because the cognitive map that's been put in place by our schools, universities, and our media does not encourage us to question accepted norms. Instead, there is apathy. In a sense, I think we're rather depressed societies. Let me just break in here a moment to say that the World Health Organization projects that depression will be the number one global burden of disease by 2030, surpassing heart disease and cancer. And although Americans constitute less than 5% of the world's population, We take two-thirds of all antidepressant medicine taken in the world today. Why should so many be depressed? Why apathetic? This is Professor Emeritus of Nottingham University, Richard G. Wilkinson, a British researcher in social inequalities in health and the social determinants of health, again from Four Horsemen. We've got used to the idea that there's nothing that can be done. There is no alternative. That, you know, we're never going to deal with these environmental problems and we live in a dog-eat-dog society and that's it. I think what we have to take away from this is a recognition that uh, most of these problems can be very substantially improved by making our societies more equal, reducing the income differences, Um, And that also helps us to solve the environmental problems. We can reach a society that is qualitatively better for all of us. While this may be true, the consolidated financial, political, and military power of a corporate banking elite that has pushed through policies, trade agreements, and military operations in spite of global public opposition, regardless of the detrimental effects of these actions is depressing because the efforts of so many good people seem futile as long as they are embedded in this power structure, the rationale of which rests in sociopathic philosophy. Milton Friedman, his protégés the Chicago Boys, and the neoclassical ideology beat the classical approach to economics and became the framework for what we today call capitalism. There are two main competing economic approaches which determine how we humans manage the world and distribute wealth. These are the classical and neoclassical schools. The classical school favours less government interference, more personal autonomy, and recognises that humans cannot function without natural resources. The neoclassical school, which has a more dismissive view of natural resources, thinks government should rule the economy, solve social problems, and leave the free market to look after the distribution of wealth. The neoclassical school emerged around 100 years ago due to vested interests' desire to protect their assets. 
This meant that neoclassical mathematical models and assumptions were divorced from reality. Well, that which is amoral is always divorced from reality. This neoclassical approach is otherwise known as laissez-faire capitalism. It has to do with deregulation. It's a philosophy, a theory. It favors taking away the common property and inheritance of citizens, privatizing, deregulating, and taking away the rights of other living beings to their habitats, disrupting ecosystems and other self-regulating whole systems imbued with the natural wisdom of the whole history of organic evolution. In short, making it possible for the least morally awake and responsible people to get away with theft, murder, plunder, misrepresentation, and domination, because the philosophy of anything-goes capitalism has been made legal and politically viable. And did you notice that the powers that be today have actually a hodgepodge of elements from various political economic schools of thought because it is actually the Ayn Randian school of thought in operation. That is, we do what we want because it makes us happy, and that is the measure of absolute rational value. Here's more from the film Four Horsemen. You'll hear now the voices of Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, former chief of staff to U.S. Secretary of State Colin Powell, and the film's director and narrator, Ross Ashcroft, then Michael Hudson, president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trends, and Tarek Aldewani, a former derivatives trader and expert on the topic of Islamic banking throughout the world. And finally, Simon Johnson, professor of economics at the MIT Sloan School of Management and former chief economist at the International Monetary Fund. The Democrats and the Republicans are beholden to corporate interests. And until they become unbeholden to those corporate interests, we will never have a well-governed republic. The first financial beneficiary of America's foreign policy is the military. In particular, those who supply it with arms and equipment. Is it any wonder developed nations are fighting in underdeveloped countries when so many are making so much money out of it, without ever really having to face up to or even witness the consequences of their actions? Uh, the public media are owned by the real estate and the financial uh, interests, and uh, they're not going to explain to people the uh, uh, integration between the financial insurance and real estate sectors, the fire sector. There's this uh, disinformation going on, uh, passing the buck, denying what the real driving factors are. Uh, all of these are common strategies. In fact, even in education, you can see that banks have helped to set up universities, they've funded them, uh, they fund think tanks, they have educational foundations, they own newspapers. Uh, all of this stuff is going on as a kind of propaganda exercise so that the people don't actually work out what the problem is. You should not assume because you know you don't have a background in economics or in law that this issue, these issues are somehow too complex for you. They're not complex at all, it's very simple. It's about power uh, and it's, it's about um, democracy. 
So what surely appears complex is really merely a propaganda campaign riddled with obfuscation and Orwellian doublespeak, people saying that they represent one set of ideas and then promulgating policies that actually represent the opposite. We're going to hear now George Lakoff from his 2004 DVD called How Democrats and Progressives Can Win. George Lakoff is a cognitive linguist and linguistics professor at the University of California, Berkeley. He's the author of numerous books, including Moral Politics, The Political Mind, Whose Freedom, and Philosophy in the Flesh, The Embodied Mind and Its Challenge to Western Thought. In 1970, Lewis Powell, a couple of weeks before he was appointed to the Supreme Court by Richard Nixon, Powell came out with a memo, and the memo went like this. We need to get wealthy conservatives to donate money to buy professorships, set up professorships in major universities for teaching our way of thinking. We need to get them to set up uh, research institutes to hire scholars, to support them very well, and we need a media presence. We need to be able to own media, consolidate media, and be able to put our ideas out there in the media. The result of this memo uh, was the development of 43 think tanks on the investment of two to three billion dollars over 30 years. Having the think tanks in place, uh, Newt Gingrich understood that uh, conservatives needed language training and particularly they needed training in how to talk and think and reason from a conservative point of view. There's another use of language that you need to be aware of, what I'll call Orwellian language, language that means the opposite of what it says. I welcome the label, compassionate conservative. And on this ground, I will take my stand. Why compassionate conservative? because they know that people did not think of conservatives as being compassionate at all. They use compassionate conservative because they know that a large part of the American population wants compassionate leaders. Frank Luntz, their language guru, uh, in a very important section of uh, his manual, his section on the environment, said something very revealing. He said that with respect to global warming, it looks like liberals are winning because they've got science on their side. But, he said, we conservatives can win through language. How do you do it? You take words that environmentalists like, healthy, clean, and safe and then you use them over and over. We need a clear skies legislation so that we can say our party has led 
to reasonable, sane environmental policy. And we need a forest policy in America. <laughs> a healthy forest initiative. They have a proposal that increases air pollution. They call it the Clear Skies Act. They have a proposal for clear-cutting forests. They call it the Healthy Forests Initiative. Now, why do they use that language? They use it because they have to, because they know that the public is not on their side. In short, they use it because they are weak. Any use they make of Orwellian language, of language that means the opposite of what it says, is used when they need it because they are weak. It is a guide for us to zoom in there and do something. And what do you do? You rename what they're talking about. They have a Clear Skies Act. You always refer to it as the Dirty Skies Act. They have the Healthy Forest Initiative. You call it something else, like leave no tree behind. Frames of mind are reinforced by repetition. Repetition of mood and atmosphere in a household or, or workspace. The treatment one receives, of course, by caregivers and teachers in childhood. Through the educational system, what is taught and what is left out. By public media and its repeated messages. And by social engineering campaigns meant to disseminate ideas to the populace, advertising campaigns, political campaigns, religious doctrines, and campaigns to dominate all of the above influences on people's worldviews. With the repeated false messages that we have all received in this society and in all societies before it, the generalized ignorance of humankind. Many, many people are deeply confused and hurting. Everybody knows. Everybody knows the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows that the fight was fixed The poor stay poor and the rich get rich That's how it goes Everybody knows Everybody knows that the boat's leaking Everybody knows that the captain Everybody got this broken feeling Like their father or the dog just died Everybody talking to their pockets Everybody wants the box of chocolates And the long stem rolls Everybody And everybody knows it 
out your clothes Everybody Okay, we're going to take a short break and come back with a potent clip from Jeremy Rifkin's The Empathic Civilization, and then a fascinating interview with Dr. Don Beck on value systems and how they relate to human development. Stay with us. From the blood that cross on top of Calvary to the beach of Malibu. Living Hero, conversations with living luminaries and mavericks. Okay, we're back to hear just a piece of The Empathic Civilization, which is a very important talk by Jeremy Rifkin. Mr. Rifkin is an internationally recognized thought leader. He is president of the Foundation on Economic Trends and the best-selling author of 19 books on the impact of scientific and technological changes on the economy, the workforce, society, and the environment. I urge you to partake of this talk in full. The Empathic Civilization is available at youtube.com forward slash the Ross Institute. Mr. Rifkin gave this talk in the summer of 2010. In this segment we're going to hear, he will go into the various philosophies on human nature that have guided humankind's thinking for millennia and in more recent times. He's just finished talking about our endangered environment, and so he starts by saying, What's wrong with us? What's wrong with us? I think the issue lies deeper than just the inability to regulate a global market or our inability to come up with benchmarks 
for CO2 reduction. What I think is really happening here is our business leaders, our government leaders, and for that matter, the rest of us, we're living off old ideas about human nature, the meaning of the human journey, and what our relationships are to this planet. Ideas that were weaned 200 years ago during the Enlightenment, at the beginning of the market era and the nation-state era. Those ideas are increasingly dysfunctional and toxic. They're a disconnect for a human race that has to come together as a single family living in one biosphere with our fellow creatures on this earth. For 1,500 years, the church had the last say about human nature. And at least the church was very clear about this. The church said, you're born in sin, depraved. Those babies are born depraved. Salvation has to await the next world with Christ. End of story. At the beginning of the Enlightenment, as we moved into the nation-state market, market era, the Enlightenment philosophers started to challenge that set of assumptions. John Locke, the great political philosopher of the Enlightenment, said, well, actually, little babies aren't born depraved. They're born blank slate, tabula rasa. What you put in them, you get out of them. Except, and he left a little bit of an opening, he said, there is one predisposition biologically. That is, we have a predisposition to acquire property. <laughs> now, somebody should have caught him on that. I mean, that's just, that's just naughty. I mean, uh, somebody got, should have gotten him on that one. Adam Smith, the great Scottish economist, who did write a very good book on moral sentiments, but his primary work, The Wealth of Nations, he said little babies are born with a drive to seek autonomy and to pursue self-interest. That's basic to our drive. Jeremy Bentham, post-enlightenment philosopher, said actually little babies are born with a drive to seek pleasure over pain and we are at the core a utilitarian creature. Charles Darwin said no, actually every creature on earth is born with a drive to reproduce themselves so they can survive. And then of course at the end of that century, Sigmund Freud said no, actually little babies are born with an insatiable sexual appetite and their whole life is about extinguishing libido. How many parents do we have here and grandparents? Glad you're reproducing here. <laughs> is this what that little baby is when they come out of the womb? Rational, calculating, detached. <laughs> Pursuing their material self-interest, craving autonomy, desiring utility, hell-bent on reproducing themselves, and completely preoccupied and obsessed with extinguishing their libido. I know, it's amusing if it weren't so sad. If that is actually who we are, we're likely doomed. I don't see any way that 6.8 billion people are going to come together as a global family and extend our family to understand we're part of an evolutionary family with our fellow creatures living on one biosphere, if that's who we are. Depraved, rational, calculating, detached, autonomous, pleasure-seeking, utilitarian-driven, libido-oriented. And that's... That idea of human nature, that idea of human journey, is embedded in our parenting, but more importantly, in every school model in the world today. We have to break that mode, because if we're talking about human nature as empathic, and that we seek intimacy, companionship, and we seek sociability, and that's our basic drive, how do we create an educational system that goes with that? Let me start with parenting first and then go to the educational system very quick. People will say, well, 
how does parenting affect this? Half the human race is still in a shaming culture in parenting, and half the human race is in a therapeutic culture in parenting. Empathic changes have been very quick with psychological consciousness. In my grandmother's generation, if a little toddler acted up and took another toddler's toy and the other toddler started to cry, the mother would slap the kid and say, shame on you, naughty boy. That gives the sense to that child that they're not living up to a, a standard of perfection, that love is conditional, and that they're a bad person, they're isolated. And if you uh, raise a child like that in a shaming culture, you'll either get a withdrawn child or a violent child in some grades of separation. It's the same with a dog. If, if, if the dog is abused, neglected, treated in that fashion, you'll get either a withdrawn or an aggressive dog. Today, a therapeutic parent, they don't even know they're therapists. It's just it's psychological consciousness. If their child takes another child's little toy, the parent will take their child apart and say, look at little Johnny crying over there. How would you feel if Johnny took your toy? That's empathic extension. Why don't you go up to Johnny? Your little kid goes up to Johnny. Johnny's crying. Your little kid starts empathic distress, tears everywhere. Then you, you provide him a script or her a script saying, well, what can you do for Johnny? And your kid will think about giving a toy back to Johnny. That's a guilt parenting based on the idea that we expect that our child wants to do the right thing, that we are by nature a social creature, that we show solidarity with each other, but they need the scripts in order to mature their sense of self-development in relationship to the other. We have to take that script then into the school system. A school system that's top-down, patriarchal, centralized, in which performance is measured by standardized responses and recitation to something that's already given, it doesn't work. Now, from what I gather at the Ross School, is very, very interesting. What we need to do now is move from a patriarchal, centralized, top-down model that fit the elite energies and organizing models of the first and second industrial revolution, because that educational model did prepare people to go into the factories, into the offices, take orders, uh, be engaged in Frederick Taylor's principles of scientific management, have a top-down organizational chart, be productive like a machine. We, we prepared them with that school system model. But as we move into a 21st century society, we have to create the idea that we are part of a human race, we're part of an extended evolutionary family, and we live in a biosphere community. That requires a different approach to education, what we would call distributed and collaborative. And there are bits and pieces of this pedagogy beginning to develop in various projects around the world. For example, empathic curriculum, very different than self-esteem curriculum. Show up, I'm great. I'm overempowered, and that just creates a narcissism. Now, self-esteem is good if it's in the context of being engaged with others in a embodied way in order to create a compassionate kid. But just saying, I'm great, and here are the ways why, in a vacuum without experience, creates a narcissistic personality tra trait. Empathic curriculum is beginning to develop. Um, uh, I know that you know about Mary Gordon's program in Canada. Have you taught that here? I mean, are, do the teachers know the Mary Gordon program? I'll give you one example. Thousands and thousands of kids from K through 12 and high school young people go through an empathic curriculum, the roots of empathy, all across Canada, thousands. What they do is they bring in a mother and her baby, five-month-old baby, once a month. The students do this in first and second grade, then middle school, and then once before high school, again. And they have one year with the mother and baby in the classroom. They're prepped ahead of time on how they have to be mindful to watch the interaction each month for a year with that mother and baby. And that is how they interact, how they create a bonds of attachment, object relations theory, how they create bonds of attachment, 
how they communicate in a pre-verbal way, how they play and groom. And so they're actually asking them to go back to basics. And then they are prepared to ask questions and observe, like let's say the little baby's trying to stand up and falls over. Maybe the eight-year-old says, you know, that's what happens to me on my bike. I know exactly how that baby's feeling I, when I was learning to ride a bike. They began to identify and empathize with that relationship. And then they bring it back to pedagogy and curriculum, whether it's uh, the, writing essays or whether it's social studies or whatever. There was one experience that was quite interesting. They had a 13-year-old boy who saw his mother killed in front of him when he was four, was in foster homes after that, very violent, very withdrawn, very aggressive, and two years older than the other kids, a big menace, <laughs> menacing hulk in the classroom. So they had, in one experience, there are thousands of these stories, they were in the classroom, he never talks, everyone was scared of him. At the end of the session, he, at, the mother said that her baby in the little snuggly never snuggled to the breast, but always wanted to be outward, would hurt the mother's feelings. So at the end of the class, he came up and he said to the teacher and mother, could I hold the baby? And everybody was just frightened to death. <laughs> That's a moment of decision for a teacher. You know? And they said, yes. He puts the baby snuggly on him, and the baby, for the first time, goes directly to the heart and chest and, and snuggles. Now, didn't do it with his own mom. So maybe he sensed, the baby sensed something. He went over to the side of the room and rocked back and forth in the chair with the baby. First contact of an empathic nature. He walked back afterwards, gave the baby back to the mother, and he asked the teacher and mother, if you've never been loved, does that mean you could not be a loving father? That was Jeremy Rifkin, teaching teachers how to arouse and strengthen empathy in young people. This is the antidote to narcissism. Since a defining deficit in the narcissist's frame of mind is lack of empathy, Jeremy Rifkin is a living hero, working for the greater good and drawing the connections between psyche and society. Next, we're going to hear part of an interview I conducted with Don Beck, who serves as a consultant to world leaders of government, banking, nonprofit organizations, and industry, developing and applying the pioneering theoretical work of his mentor, Professor Claire Graves. His program, Spiral Dynamics, is a whole systems theory of human development which provides deep understanding of the fundamental value structures, the full spectrum of the known value structures. These are otherwise known as value memes, and they are guiding human thought and behavior. These value systems underpin both the conflicts and the camaraderies among individuals and groups. I'm sorry for the compromised sound quality of this interview. We did run into some technical problems, but the content is rich, and I hope you will agree is well worth the listening. Professor Claire W. Graves, uh, Union College, uh, New York. 
who in the uh, early 1950s was frustrated teaching psychology where he'd teach units on Sigmund Freud and behaviorism and Carl Rogers' humanism and then the new cognitive sciences and in cultures, which led him to the understanding of what human nature is, why some people change, others don't. If one is interested in issues about the environment, how can you speak the various value systems of people who are spread along a psychological map? So what is unique about this body of knowledge? And if I want to get real, real, real fancy, it's called the emergent cyclical double helix model of biopsychosocial system development. And that's, that's why wow. we call it spiral dynamics. That's a mouthful. It's a very complex system, yet a very simple system to use because we're able now to look at, at the deeper motivations in people, not the surface level behaviors in politics or religion or in this country, issues over health care and those things, to go deeper in, into the core value priorities that exist in people that rarely uh, are seen on the surface. And I was teaching at the University of North Texas when I read an article he wrote in The Futurist, the publication of the World Future Society, April 1974, in which he said human nature prepares for a momentous leap. Hey, that was back in 1974. There wasn't anybody except Claire Graves that I knew of who seriously was talking about it in 1974. So I, I left teaching. Uh, I had a chance to work in South Africa behind the scenes on the transformation out of apartheid. So I said, if I can use this concept of differences in people that go beyond race and ethnicity, and if I can show South African leaders across the spectrum that what they thought were the great divides weren't after all, that there were universals that cut across those categories. Uh, I made 63 trips to Johannesburg as a major field test because if we could unlock that very serious problem where there wouldn't be a civil war, then it means that we had a framework that's immensely powerful and could be adapted in first, second, third world across multiple tribes, cultures, languages because of the universal recognition that these value systems do indeed exist in people, not frozen types, but evolutionary emerging patterns of thought that change as life conditions change. So it sounds like it's something of a, uh, a social theory of everything. It is. It's just a theory, of course. Well, it let me ask you to drill down a little bit into the different worldviews so that people have this basic understanding of the spiral before we go into some of the other sure. questions. Graves' uh, research identified eight of these systems, not types, systems in people. Of course, the first-level system, survivalistic, like newborn infants and senile elderly and profound retardation and some politicians that I know who are just barely making through the day, making through the, di uh, through the night. So... Uh, after 9-11, with that trauma, a lot of people regressed in New York City into almost a helplessness, a zombie-type existence needing tender, loving care. So we began then with a basic survival 
system, and may return to it. And as we get older, our senility hits us, where all of a sudden we aren't as robust as we once were. A, a second system that the grave noted, and, and parents have seen this in children, is a very animistic, superstitious, uh, tribal-like existence with a, a focus on the warm nest. There's a, a sense of magic in it. Uh, I work a lot with pro sports teams, and you can often see ba- uh, baseball players go through the same ritual. And because obviously I worked in South Africa with Zulus, that I had an appreciation for this tribalistic system that surfaces when there's fear. And we search for that warm nest and for the spirits or maybe our little magic superstition that we wear around our neck or something, which is the nature of that adaptive system. Uh, It still exists on this planet and as a subsystem in people. Whenever the crisis hits them, we become very superstitious once again. In childhood, does that relate at all to, you know, like a three-year-old girl who dresses up as the fairy princess? Oh, my. Oh, and, and, and isn't that wonderful? You know, or an attachment to a doll or to a bear or something. Investing it with magical powers, imagining oh. that it comes alive the minute we fall asleep, that sort of thing. Oh, yes, and certainly a a lot of our holidays are based on it, with the belief that Santa Claus can indeed come down all those chimneys. Yeah, magical thinking. It's essential in our development. But if we stay in that magical thinking, when our life conditions become more complex and we become very naive, having worked so much in Africa and in Palestine where I encounter a great deal of that system still. From that uh, emerged the egocentric uh, we know it as a terrible twos, or as a society with the so-called big men of Africa take over and form warlords, like in Afghanistan today. It's really locked in that third-level system with predators and preys and gangs, for sure. So entire societies can get locked into that egocentric, predatory, feudal-age system, and it can last a long, long time encounter that in the Middle East constantly. So out of the egocentric system, eventually creates a need for a true belief, for a cause celeb, where our instant gratifications no longer please us, and we then began to look to the future, to sacrifice self now, to obtain later, become boy and girl scouts. Here come many of the more fundamentalist religious systems, be they Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, Islam. And so that is a natural development in children where they suppress their instant gratification needs and submit to some higher order of discipline and meaning in life and purpose in life. The the failure of us to develop a good absolutistic discipline system means our children are not prepared for the world. Today it's very weak and when it's very weak the society becomes vulnerable to all all kind of egocentric leaders and isms of various kinds and drugs of various kinds. So lacking meaning and purpose means that we move into a zone of chaos. 
society loses any sense of stability and accountability. And we pay a heavy, heavy price. What I'm hearing is that there is a healthy dimension and perhaps an unhealthy or a regressive dimension to all of these possible systems. Is that correct? That's true in all of them. What you just said is so important that if that is too heavy a conforming system, then children will reject it. If it's not strong enough, then it won't guide them. At a time when they need to learn to sacrifice for a greater good, there is no cause that they can embrace, and that becomes very dangerous for us. These are essential, necessary, emerging systems, and there's a consistency in how and why they appear. Okay, so what comes next after that system? Well, uh, out of that absolutistic system that produced dark ages came the sudden spark of the Enlightenment, the, the shift from divine fate control, that it's all in the hands of the gods and we're simply along for the ride, to the belief that the individual matters. And so a major shift occurred in the Protestant Revolution and in the development of capitalism and the invisible hand of Adam Smith that it said today each individual acting in their own behalf will cause all the boats to rise and society to emerge in a greater affluence. So a shift from it's all in the pie in the sky when we die to the belief that we can have a fraction of the action today, we can have the good life today. And so to the age of research and science and materialism and modern entity, uh, societies went through a major transformation. It's not hard to document that. And starting about three or four hundred years ago particularly, and certainly in England and other places like that. And today we're beginning to see it emerge in China. That's why all of a sudden when China took over Hong Kong, they, they swallowed this pill. And now China will never be the same again. So after we have stabilized ourselves with rules, regulations, at some point the autonomous self says, this is not enough. I want the good life here and now. So we create technology and the particular social systems and, and capitalistic systems that, that make possible people acting their own behalf. And therefore, if, if it's healthy, then, as social entrepreneurs can be, then it means that they spread the wealth and everyone gets better. But like all the other systems, if it gets too heavy, then we have the kind of banking crisis that just about brought us down. Too many people got greedy, not satisfied with how many millions of dollars they had, and they have to have more. So with the derivatives and other kinds of activities, we pretty well spoiled the system because we lost our control, our regulations. We found that we simply went too far, and now we're paying a heavy price for the excesses. And this is the key to really understand the spiral. When do systems change? Well, they change when the earlier systems produce problems that they can't solve, and therefore a need for new thinking to occur. And thus far, in spite of serious problems, to move into more complex thinking. Now, there's no guarantee that that's going to happen because a whole society could implode. Uh, but yet, because I'm a hopeful kind of person, then I, I think that 
there is an inevitability to the fact that as we solve one set of human problems, we create a new set of their plays, requiring a new value system. But because the old problems don't, don't disappear, we, we transcend, but we include. Mm -hmm. A healthy society will have all these systems operating. It seems like uh, the real challenge is uh, being eclectic and knowing what is suitable when and keeping a healthy balance so that all the good in these various systems comes to the fore to help society and the negative imbalance, you know, pathological elements that can arise from these systems. Oh, you're, you're, you're very insightful. It's, think, think of these as, as dams and locks, right? There's eight dams and locks between uh, French-speaking Canada and Ottawa, and I just love to use them as examples. That's a great metaphor. Yeah, and so and so we are the masters of it, the lockmeister. We sit there at the top, regulating the opening and closing of these locks. And that's what management, city management, state management, it's what the UN ought to be doing but isn't. It's what it ought to be. Okay, we'll hear the rest of this interview on human potential and value memes with Dr. Don Beck after a short break for these important messages. Stay tuned. Living Hero Conversations with Living Luminaries and Mavericks. Welcome back to Living Hero, Conversations with Living Luminaries and Mavericks. We are here each week to talk with those local, regional, national, and international artists, researchers, activists, authors, healers, wisdom figures, and heroic individuals of all kinds who are working for the greater good. I'm Jari Chevalier, and I want you to explore and celebrate with me what it means to be a living hero in our times. We are drawing the connections between psyche and society, between our innermost experience and the large-scale geopolitical reality we all share. We are looking at what conscientious individuals and groups are doing to take a more holistic view and to usher in more wholesome ways of living and structuring societies. So get the big picture, draw connections, repair neural synapses with interviews, essays, music, spoken word, audio collages, panel discussions, listener participation, 
This is independently produced, listener-supported radio, created in the public interest. And now we return to our interview with Doctor of Philosophy Don Beck. We're picking up right where we left off. He's been taking us through the known value memes and their characteristics. It's what the UN ought to be doing that isn't. It's what it ought to be. Well, let's just get through the, the, the spiral, the, the aspects that we know about, because as you say, it's, it goes on forever as long as the species survives because different pressures will continue to right. arise and we will continue to evolve in, into unforeseen elements of, of our capacities. But let's, that was um, up to, I think, the orange meme. Modern, modern entity. Uh, so in our lifetime, uh, we, we've seen the emergence of the six-level code uh, out of materialism, out of the artificiality of the machine age, out of heavy dogma like dark ages, uh, into a sense of humanness. And, of course, we had all the music of Burt Bacharach. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. He and heavy is my brother. Walk a mile in my shoes. Everything is beautiful in its own way. So we've witnessed over the last 30, 40 years how this new value system has emerged. But it did not emerge in, in, in Afghanistan. It emerged in those societies that have reached that fifth-level system. Well, now they have enough money in the bank. They can contemplate their navels. They can go to training programs and personal development. Uh, they can hold hands in consensus circles and sing kumala. They can do all kinds of things. You mean kumbaya? Yeah, that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, yeah we, don't, we don't know the words down here in Texas. Because <laughs> we haven't reached that level yet. We're still back in red empires, you know, with six guns and all that. So... Yeah, and so, and because once again, if, if you go to Sweden, Denmark, Netherlands, you'll see a lot of this system, much more so than even in this country. And you'll see it on, on, on both coasts. What's so, the downside of that system? The downside is it attacks the blue absolutistic system through political correctness and anti-discipline. And each child can do what they want an overly permissiveness in a, in a social system. And, and Don, everybody gets a standing ovation. Yes, and no honor societies because that separates children. See? Yes. That strong egalitarian, and it, it is very strong because it relieves people of individual responsibility. It's not their fault. It's the fault of society. And so we've had such a heavy dose of that in criminology and social justice and and education. It's, it's not happening in India or China, I'll, I'll guarantee you. And that's why this country is at extreme risk. And one of these days we'll wake up and say, oh my gosh, what have we done? Well, let's say the pressure within that meme, which in the spiral is the green meme, that you sometimes refer to as the mean green meme. Oh, you're well read. Uh, oh, not really. A little bit. Yeah. But w what is what is the potential for growth 
onward, we have to acknowledge there are some people on the planet who have moved on, uh, but it's a very, very small percentage. It's, it's a lonely, it's a lonely group. But um, what happens when one transcends from that green? In fact, it's, it's, it's happening rapidly today. And, it, and it, it's not because of sermons or books or speeches or seminars or gurus or, or trips to India. None of that. It's pressure. It's, it's the fact that, that our solutions aren't working yeah. in spite of our best intentions. Our children are not learning. Crime rates can increase. Geopolitical conflicts where less complex systems read ecocentric can access the weapons of more complex systems but without the intervening controlling guilt. So we've created one unholy mess for ourselves because we assume all humans are the same and that's the green system. And they will all act in a responsible fashion if we just love them and accept them and stay out of their way and give them guns and all those things We'll, we'll be just perfect and we'll live forever. Well, that's very, very naive and a lot of people are just now discovering. But that's how change happens. When things get bad enough, we realize that our solutions are, are not going to work any longer and that opens the brain. Actually, there are major neurological changes and all of a sudden we begin to see whole new thought structures emerge. I work a lot in so-called third-way politics, beyond from the left, from the right. I was at 10 Downing Street with the, the, uh, the Blair people back when he was prime minister, trying to explain to them that. And during this last election here, obviously, it's clear to me that a new political model that we call transpartisanship was, was on the verge of appearing. It didn't appear yet. And today, over the health care issue, we're seeing the ugly face of partisanship and stereotyping of people and calling each other racist or Nazis. My goodness alive. Where is that spirit of cooperation we thought we had let loose in the last election? Where did it go? Well, it's because we still have uh, decision-making systems and leadership systems that are unfortunately blocked and more primitive value codes. We've got to do something about it, and I think ultimately we will. But I think Gen Y, not, not Gen X, but Gen Y, is showing a lot of interest in this system today. So, but this, this, this is the way change happens. So we have to be patient. I think we can be proactive. I think we have to. Uh, but nature's on our side thus far. So, Don, um, th this emerging structure, uh, can you say just a little bit more about that before we move on? Sure. Uh, take the case of uh, capitalism. There are people, of course, who want to throw out that system in the name of socialism. Capitalism is bad. And we say, no, red, egocentric capitalism, greedy capitalism is bad. There are aspects of orange, self-serving uh, materialistic capitalism can be bad, but capitalism itself, if you think of functional capitalism, functional, serves a critical purpose. So what yellow does is it takes many of these forms, even authoritarianism, and puts the word functional in front of it. Not 
the final stage, not to lock people in, but to realize that value system is critical in the emergence in our spiral, but we can't have the full dose of it as we once did, but we need the functional part of it. Does spiral dynamics itself, does this approach actually come out of a yellow uh, way of thinking, which seems to me, again, this eclecticism. Let's look at all the different existing structures and ways of being in the world and ways of believing and find the best aspects of each of them and put those to use and and learn how to control or whatever the case may be, depending on who's doing it, um, the, the lower octave in a sense. Well, yes, uh, and that's what, because in this, this uh, seventh code, I can call it, there is the acceptance that all the earlier systems, uh, animistic, tribal, clans, empires, uh, ideologies, uh, uh, materialistic, uh, humanistic, all these are, are simply pathways on the human trajectory. But how's that different from green? Well, because green says that they're all equal. Okay. So that's the distinction. Yellow says they they all exist, they all need to be um, acknowledged and dealt with appropriately, not made equal. That's right. That's right. Okay. That's that's, that's the primary difference, because green denies verticality. It says that's that's Mm -hmm. racist. Yeah. No, it's not. It's simply a stage of development. Now, what about the turquoise? Because we're just we're taking a lot of time on this intro, and I just want to get through what the known spiral uh, so far. Well, I'm finding some evidence of turquoise starting to emerge, but only after yellow has done it. It's, it's like if we have a deep wound, we want to pack it or put a tube in it so it heals from the bottom up. What yellow does is stitches together these vertical systems. It recognizes there are billions of people passing out of feudal age and they're going to go through an authoritarian system. That's what we found in Palestine. That's why our Build Palestine initiative is working so very well. What's next for Palestinians is not the free market system as we understand it. So yellow sees different stages of development in, in a vertical way, wanting to stitch together that so it opens up the passageway for change to occur if indeed it's triggered. Turquoise is a collective system. It's about the healing bomb of Gilead that sears the gaps, that that heals, that produces more of a cooperative venture. But but only after yellow has done its thing. And then more collective systems. I, I spoke at the UN the other day. I'm trying to explain what's after the UN. We've had the League of Nations, we've had the United Nations, and will and will the next version even have the word nations in it? Will it even have a building? Mm-hmm. Or will it be a distributed intelligence that's shared across the, the entire planet? So that's what turquoise is thinking about. Where do you see yellow and turquoise emerging? Well, I see it in post-green environments. We, we have a colleague, Marilyn Hamilton, who works in Vancouver, Royal Road University, and we're finding in Canada a lot of this emerging system. When their political leaders shift from the 
more progressive, liberal, we call it in this country, uh, mindset, as just happened, by the way, in Japan, into a more disciplined, integrated fashion. And our colleagues in, in Netherlands, and we recently had a summit on fundamentalism in, uh, in Netherlands, had 900 Dutch leaders in the entire Dutch system today that was trapped, tilted from the left, from the right, from the left, from the right, all of a sudden broke out of that. And with one of our colleagues, who was at the World Bank at the time, Herman Weichels, led the effort to redesign the Dutch system with heavy yellow properties in it. And because they're, they're Dutch and they live in dikes, which means they're concerned about the, the environment for sure, then we're seeing some very interesting developments. And our experience has been that we're seeing the, the more rapid yellow turquoise in Netherlands than we're finding anywhere else. Looking at each of these codes, purple, tribal, egocentric, red, absolutistic, blue, uh, materialistic, orange, humanistic, green, how one can design a communication to hit those multiple levels. Otherwise, we send people our reasons to do things out of our value systems. Oh, I, I really think... I really think this piece of it is so critical. It's like you use a completely different vocabulary and a different um, rationale system to attract and excite and uh, bring understanding to people who have completely different ways of thinking about things, different priorities entirely. Yeah, rather than speaking their, their particular language like French, German, Swahili, Zulu. We speak their value system language. Their emotional language, in That's a sense. Right. Their bottom line. Yeah, fantastic. So um, the question arises, how have you been able or have you been able to apply this knowledge uh, when dealing with seemingly impossible people? I'm talking specifically about... Um, you know, gangsters, sociopaths, narcissists, uh, people who see themselves as above or outside the law and simply will not be held accountable, don't want to be communicated with, just want to do what they're going to do. How can a society deal with that? Because, you know, laws are set up to try to deal with that, and it's still really very, very difficult to do so. It's because while we, we speak here of, of value systems, we also acknowledge the genetic differences of people. And that's why everybody is not at the same level. We're like gardens already planted, mm -hmm. and there are bizarre chemical mixtures of the brain that cause broken brains. Mm -hmm. And there's an extent to which we can't reach into those populations. We can look at our value systems with regard to how we treat those populations. If we continue to put them out on the street, then we should not be surprised in terms of uh, predation that the behavior pattern continues. Obviously, at some point, there might be biologic, chemical agents, if not 
major surgery in order to correct where the problem is. It may not be a social problem. It may be a... That's why Claire Gray's was one of the first to say these are biopsychosocial systems. Bio. Degrees of activation of the central nervous system. Well, in his day, when he spoke at the National Institute of Mental Health in Washington, even though he spoke on it, that was the time when we were so concerned about eugenics and about racism and stereotypes. But genetic research is showing that there are some interesting dynamics in our biology. Yet we have a, a good friend, Dr. Bruce Lipton, who wrote the biology of belief, is showing he's a medical researcher from University of Wisconsin Med School, uh, showing that environment can change our genetics. So it's not a fatalistic thing, but it's a, it's a recognition that in this vast human diversity, there are what we will call broken brains. The green system would deny it. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. But the more that we're doing this kind of research, uh, avoiding reductionism, the more that what Claire Graves said back in the 1950s and 60s was so accurate, it's scary. He did a lot of work at state hospitals and, and what we used to call insane asylums and prisons and so forth. So he's not naive. And the research he did was often psychophysical, not verbal self-reporting little questionnaires, but major differences in looking at how human nature changes and under what conditions it does change and how, if we are wise enough, how we can begin to escape the singular approaches that we've had in, in the first value systems. Put everyone through the same car wash. Put students through the same teaching education system. No matter the fact that they learn in different ways. So the, the whole approach is leading to the recognition of natural intelligences in people. And better to determine early what those are and find ways to help them find jobs, occupations, careers that fit who they naturally are as opposed to thinking that we can through education or social influence change everybody into what we want them to be. Well, I think those, those days are gone. And it, it doesn't mean our job is much easier in education, but it means it's, it's much more fruitful. And we have for some time tried to impact our education system from the for the no child left behind to each child to full potential. And whatever that potential is, there's a biological feature, there's a genetic feature, there's a temperament feature, there is a, a an opportunity, there's a nutrition aspect, there's a family that all of the above. But the issue is, why can't we be bright enough to begin to recognize our differences and celebrate them? But at, at the same time, hold people accountable for the impact that they're having on society at large. Mm -hmm. and that, and well, that, that's a real challenge for That's me. exactly. Because the type of person that I'm talking about in the question, you know, is the last person to voluntarily go for any kind of assessment or therapy. Um, you know, there, there are just many, many people who have gone through courses of therapy and personal growth and this, that, and the other thing. But the, the true 
dominator types or narcissists or, you know, sociopaths are the last people to go in for that kind of voluntary help. But this sort of, this segues well into the question that's related, and that is that on a, a large scale, systemic level, as long as there are dominator, conqueror, imperialistic types of people and types of societies on the planet, the truly peaceable, balanced, you know, sustainable types of people are really never safe from invasion and oppression and slavery and genocide. So have you um, and the people you're working with discussed um, a vision, a structural way to ensure that this type of dominator personality and dominator type of society is sanctioned in the global scope of things? Well, for the, uh, this, this is a major problem for sure. And my experience with it first was in South Africa. That was very much a microcosm of the planet. Tribes, empires, holy orders, religious extremists, soldiers of fortune, uh, crazy people up, trapped in the southern swatch of Africa. So many of the models that I helped create came from that realism, that how can society at large figure out a way for human nature to continue and to solve its problems called the power of the third wind. How can that, how can that happen? What political, economic, religious, educational, technological systems and structures facilitate that and identify early excesses that move beyond boundaries that threaten the entire life force itself and how can that be communicated beyond the racial ethnic uh, white privilege categories so it has legitimacy and that parents because of their concern for the children and grandchildren realize that these things cannot continue and this is where what we call democracy, but even that's not strong enough if we simply count the number of people with majority rule. I mean, Hitler was elected by majority rule. So that's, well, that's not a, a, a guarantee. That's why we're trying to build this, this new body of knowledge, a distributed intelligence that has built into it the understanding of the codes of emergence, recognizing what the life conditions are, what the capacity of the people are in those life conditions before we march in with economic, political, or foreign aid solutions to it. And we continue to make a mess of things, particularly in Africa, because our own ideologies have not allowed us to see the, the reality because we're trapped on the race issue and we can't get out of it. So, Don, if I hear you correctly, you're saying that the uh, the system that you see would work best would be one that facilitates the evolutionary capacity uh, in in every scenario by understanding where people are now and giving them every opportunity to grow to the next level uh, and evolve and emerge into that next stage where they where they get to experience growth. Well, or have healthy versions of where they are. Uh-huh, yeah. 
people have a right to be who and what they are. So rather than say, unless you continue to grow and reach our level, then you're not fully human. Yeah. None of that. I like that. For instance, if a tribe wants to stay with their animistic uh, life, to not insist that they change and, and that everybody continues to change yeah, and move on. Just realize at some point their children will begin to reject it. Mm-hmm. And if they can't, they're going to heavy alcoholism. I see. So to, to constantly read them so that that tribal system doesn't disappear, it becomes a subsystem a ritualistic system because it keeps people bonded to home and heart. But rather than wipe it out, as the Marxists tried to do, killing fields of Cambodia, you realize it's a subsystem. It's a sub-theme. So we have our holidays. We have our Easter and Halloween. And we don't get into arguments about what we celebrate in Christmas. And we end this nonsense to say, because this is a dominant Christian uh, society. Don't bugger with it. As I say to my Muslim friends, you're making a serious mistake if you do that. And because I work in Israel-Palestine, right in the core of the free historic religious system, right in Jerusalem, where, where they, are, they are on high beam, let me tell you, how in the world we can create a whole overarching system that accommodates them as opposed to try to compete among them. That's, that's the challenge, and that basically is why we're doing what we're doing. And that's it for today's Living Heroes show. I'm so glad you joined us, and I hope you enjoyed this program. Tune in each week, Saturday mornings from 9 to 10.30 Eastern at 91.1 in Plainfield and 91.7 in Hardwick in beautiful north-central Vermont and streaming live wherever you are at WGDR.org. Podcasts of all our shows are available at livinghero.com, on iTunes, and around the web. You can get more details about this show at livinghero.com. Subscribe to our RSS feed. Join us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Leave your comments on the podcast page at livinghero.com. This is WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick. Thanks for listening. Be well, and see you next time. The preceding program presents the opinion of its participants and producer. It does not reflect an official opinion of WGDR 
or its licensee, Goddard College.